play my way out of situations, out of every day. Living in the moment, well, I never get that right. Always need a place to run, hiding from the light. How many times did I leave? Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name is Jason Barnard, and that was Barry Adamson. Um, Broken Moments, one of the highlights from his Steal Away EP. I've got Barry here today to talk about his brilliant new memoir, Up Above the City, Down Beneath the Stars, Time Magazine, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, and Solo Career, and, and much more. First of all, a huge welcome, Barry. Thanks very much, Jason. Nice to be here. It seems a, a good point to start in that this seems to be a bit of a a link between that EP, Broken Moments, and your memoir, isn't there? Well, I guess it's uh, it's all from the the same creative well. <laughs> but the thing was with the EP, it, 
I wrote it at a time when I was writing the memoir and I was in quite deep and I sort of needed to come back to something more familiar, which is making music. I mean, I haven't written a book before, so I found it quite challenging. So I'd spend all morning doing that. And then in the afternoon, I'd, I'd go back to what I know and, you know, what I've done before and have experience and knowledge and therefore felt a bit more confident about, which was the EP. But, you know, the two affect affect each other, I think. You know, some of the the information that was coming from the memoir and particularly some of the the musics that I've delved into throughout my life in terms of being a fan or listening or or things that sort of you know really gave me some sort of like creative ideas they they've come out in the EP so I think the two are related in some ways and your book is so vivid it really does take us back to the the 1960s the 70s and and your childhood yeah. such a a different time in a way things have moved on in some ways and, and I guess in some other ways they haven't. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there, during the research, there was kind of really basic things I wanted to nail in terms of facts and historical things. But then I also wanted to imbue those facts with a sort of sense of my take on things, you know, as a, as a child, as a teenager. And then, of course, you know, it's a music memoir and I always needed to come back and anchor you know, all all of that stuff with the music, which was happening at the time, so that there was a, a truth to that. And that sort of, uh, uh, you know, is something that didn't change really. Like you listen to a record now that was made then, it's still that record, you know. So it, it kind of kept it anchored, I think. And I could go off in sort of various, because the memoir's like not straightforward, you know. Yeah. It's got a bit of a strange cinematic twist on it. And I, I kind of make myself the, central character and go back over this this period and face all these you know challenges and 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 the you know all the stuff growing up and give it a kind of a different kind of narrative spin in that way I think. Pop music and, and music more generally then given the nature of how society was in that you'd have a hit record and then everybody would know it yeah and the nature of having vinyl which you'd often had to save up for meant that true, yeah. music was kind of everywhere but at the same time it was more precious and personal to people as well i think that's the case i mean you know as well i think now the technology invites everyone to make music and, and you know and, and of course some of that is great as it always is but there is a sort of individualism about the way music was made. I mean, I don't want to get all nostalgic and sort of, oh, there were much better times then, you know, you got your vinyl on a Friday night, yeah, and all, you know, all that sort of stuff. But <laughs> there, there was something about, and there was a real quest to be individual, you know, and make something that was different to, to everybody else. Now I think that the idea is like people look for it to sound like something they know so that they yeah. can rely on it. You know, they don't have to kind of do any, <laughs> do any brain work. But I used to find it absolutely uh, captivating that, you know, each thing sounded of its own, you know, mm. like, and there's just this, like you say, like, you know, and saving up for, you know, the, the vinyl and then you get it home and, and it becomes this thing that you're so close to for a while. Definitely. And as you moved into your, your teens and, and you kind of, absorbed the music in the charts but again you started to adopt things that were just slightly left field moving away from the charts like the original Alice Cooper group next we've got Caught in a Dream and that you describe how that being a key track for you mm. in that period in the book as well don't you yeah I do I, you know I, I what I felt a bit sort of left of center so I would find these other things that, that would seem to make sense to me you know and I and I always uh and it was strange you know a, a person 
of color in the in the late sixties, early seventies, getting into the Alice Cooper group. But as far as musicianship goes, I thought they were absolutely brilliant. I could hear what was going on and what they were actually doing in their sort of techniques and where they were going with. Plus, it resonated because I was at that place where they were singing, I'm 18 and I like it. And I was 18 and trying to like it and trying to get into what it was, you know, and, and just the whole thing of like, you know, being caught between two worlds of, of being a grown up and a kid. And, and they really put that across, you know, of course they did it all with a bit of a tongue in cheek. And also they took incredible sort of, uh, you know, they risks about the kind of rock music that they made, which I thought, and all of that, I thought was really brilliant. So yeah, Caught in a Dream is just fantastic. There's a great part in your memoir where you just you list all the gigs that you went to, particularly around Manchester. Mm. The range of acts and the quality of acts is astounding. I know that came through every week. 
sometimes three gigs a week to see that, you know, what was it like Bowie on a Monday, Hawkwind on a Tuesday, you know, <laughs> Kiss on a Wednesday. <laughs> you know, it was, it was nonstop, really. You know, you had your first work, your first wages. It feels like you had like a, a freedom. Yeah. I think that brown wage packet on a Friday, it was like the doors were suddenly opened to to freedom in terms of all sorts of social activities, you know, and not being dependent, I guess, on your parents to give you a fiver or a tenner to go and do something and the beginning of a real kind of independence. And so it was worth, that was more in um, summer holidays and then it extended the, the summer a bit a bit more because I was like between school and college. So I had a bit more time there, but yeah, that was a real sort of taste of like where you could go, you know, and I, and I wasn't sort of work shy in any way, you know, I knew that that's, that's where you were, you know, that's what you had to do in, in order to sort of have a freedom. You mentioned about that transition into college and, and you describe how you, you went to start part technical college. And hmm. like many of your peers, you were hearing some of those early punk records, um, particularly described that vivid moment that you um, heard White Riot by The Clash for the first time and uh, it was just like a, a flash of lightning, really? It was. It was like, okay, here's your direction, <laughs> if you like. It was almost like, um, you know, the universe saying, okay, this is all very well what you're doing now. You, you want to train to become a designer in some, you know, some art capacity. But um, listen to this, you know, and it was strange because suddenly everything made sense about all the, you know, all the gigs that we talked about going to and all the bands and listening so intently to all those records. And then it was like the rule book was thrown out the window, first of all, with Buzzcock's Spiral Scratch. And then, of course, you know, with, with songs like White Riot and, and New Rose by the Damned in particular, and just the energy that they had. And also this idea that you didn't need to be you know, a genius musician to get up on stage and play. You just had to have this punk enthusiasm, which I, I, I had. And I was just incredibly fortunate to be in the right place at the right time, at the right age, to embrace those ideas altogether and almost see it as like the ultimate call to arms and, and to actually leave college and join a band as quick as I could. <laughs> Oh, 
had you played an instrument or music before that period? Or was it that moment where you were inspired to... Was it a bass that you picked up first? It was a bass I picked up first. I had played a little bit of guitar, but I didn't feel... If you said to me, like, oh, come and play guitar, I wouldn't feel that proficient enough to do that. But there was something about the bass. I mean, you know, there's a story there in that I was given a bass that had a couple of strings on it and went to buy the other two strings and saw an advert to join the band magazine. And I got it. I got the actual gig the next day. I mean, really remarkable. And I didn't have a lot. I had a musical sensibility. I, I always did. You know, I could pick things up really quick. I could harmonize with things on the radio. I could drum, you know, on the table. And this was, you know, drive my parents crazy with like drumming all the time, singing all the time, you know. And so those elements made it that for some reason the bass seemed to be a way into that world because I, I had a, a sense of like you know the things I'd been messing about with and I could put them together quite easily. But I didn't I didn't really stretch out on the, the instrument at all very much. You know, in fact, one of the reasons I got in was because I couldn't <laughs> and I could I was like playing one string the bottom E on, on a track which eventually became the light pours out of me by magazine. This was the first track I was shown. So I just kept rhythm on this one string and it seemed to work really well. So I mean, incredibly fortunate all the way round, I think, you know. Obviously, you mentioned the Buzzcocks before, and obviously Howard mm. branched off. Yeah, that's Do right. Do you personally know the group at the time or Howard? Not at the beginning, no, because, uh, you know, I was like a fan, like it. I saw them at a gig, and this is, was the thing that seemed to me to make it possible. Instead of them being backstage and getting ready to come on and, and this distance between audience and the band, and some of them were at the bar, you know, they were just sat at the bar like everyone else and said, and then they seemed to nod to each other and just walk up and get on the stage and start playing, which to me, having just seen probably Led Zeppelin a few weeks before and a massive, you know, it, it made it more plausible and possible that this is something you could do. Much of the magazine material is just, it just arrives fully formed, so evocative and it's, it's very much its own sound. And you mentioned yeah. the clash earlier, but you also mentioned a moment where Mick Jones heard, I think it might have even been that track live, then basically yeah. praises you for your playing. I know, I couldn't believe it. And what, uh, it's in the book as well, is that we've got like two mates with me who've known me before all this. And they're, they're like, I'm having to close their mouths because there's Mick Jones you know, from the clash coming over to me and going up, what bell? You know, that that light pours out on me. It's like, great. You know, it's like Motown. It's like this thing. I was like, oh, cheers, you know. And and inside, I was going, oh, my God, I can't believe it. You know, all that sort of stuff. But, yeah, so things were, like, moving incredibly fast. You know, suddenly we're, we're in the, the similar league, you know, as people I admired only six months ago, you know, six, nine months ago. Quite incredible.
and shot by both sides was the first magazine single. What was it like going into the a proper recording studio for the first time, given mm. your run into music was so quick? Yeah. Well, you just had to sort of take it all on as quick as you could. You know, I mean, I had an idea. It was like, it was a bit like, well, what do you imagine that this is going to be? And then it's exactly like you imagine, you know. So it was, it was just, it was like that thing where it's just, it's like, imagine that guy who walks around on that comedy show going, brilliant. Oh, it's brilliant. Oh, yeah, it's brilliant. Oh, and that were brilliant. It was kind of like that every day because there was all this stuff happening, you know. And I really remember working with this producer, Mick Glossop, and the way he was making things sound and, you know, and the way we were putting things together and like it was just a great experience then playing live as well and you describe how you understandably the first gigs you were quite nervous as well yeah uh, of course because uh you know it's an unproven thing and we but we, we had the sort of a bit of confidence because we were howard already known and he was courting the press in a certain way not always good and he was getting a, a name for himself and a bit of notoriety and it attracted an audience. So we were there and our idea was to nail people, you know, like in the best way we could and to bring them in to sort of our world and give them something that was really great. Because we thought it was really great. You know, we kind of had this thing that we were putting together and the chemistry seemed to be just right. Sure, there was nerves. Um, uh, I think I talk about in the book about when you're playing in London and being slightly wary of the London cool, you know, <laughs> because you'd be playing your ass off and people would just stand there going, yeah, okay, what, what's next? Whereas everywhere else in the country, people were really going for it. You mentioned the, f- the first appearance on Top of the Pops as well, where Howard Howard's performance, he, he almost purposely didn't yeah. you know, use the word lackluster. Fall into line, yeah. I mean, I get it as well, you know, and I was kind of, I think it's, the book describes me sort of, I get it. I really do get it. Like not wanting to be something you're not and being exactly who you are, but then using that to such a, you know, an obstinate position that it puts people off a bit, you know, and pushes people away and push that chart position away in some way. So it was a mixed bag really, because I was, I was kind of with him on stuff a lot of the time, you know, and I didn't want to see it as a particularly negative thing, but it felt like it was a no-brainer, like your parents are saying, well, that's it now. You're gone. See ya. And then you come back on the Monday going, well, it didn't quite go that way, you know. But it was a great experience, though.
for the follow-up magazine album Second Hand Daylight, we've got um, the Rhythm of Cruelty and it still feels musically that you were still on the upward path and pushing forward by that time. Yeah, I think so. I thought we, the thing that over hung over magazines head a lot of the time was the success. I think we all felt it could have gone further. It could have gone more than it was. And in that way, I felt that we were quite underrated in some ways. And then in other ways, you could kind of see a trend of the way groups were now putting things together in quite a commercial way. And we did what we did. And I think we thought that success would just land on our doorstep because it should just land on our doorstep. So I think I think what happened after a few years is that we started going, hang on a minute, what's going on? You're selling just as many albums, but not more, but you're still selling out shows. You know, people are turning up and people are still thinking you're really great and stuff, but it's not going any further. And I, I could see that that started to frustrate certain members of the band, particularly John, the Georg, the guitarist. You say how... After a few more years, that sparkle yeah. started to go a little bit. Yeah, I think I think that's that's what happens because you know you're giving everything and you go okay. Particularly with Second on Daylight, I think we thought that's the album that's going to take us somewhere else. And I thought, well, that was I think that was more me than anybody. And so by the the third album, the correct use of soap, I think we found another angle to sort of come from and, and, a, and a particularly strong set of songs and. We thought, well, this is it. This is this is really going to be it now, and it wasn't. So you can kind of understand why the, as I call it in the book, the rot starts to set in. But and it also starts to set in internally with me. I started to sort of become, you know, more sort of wild and off the rails, and and you know, started to disappear up my own backside a bit more. And then things start to take quite a dark turn, which I try not to sort of hold back at all from in the book you know and describe that as part of this the whole journey Your face down on my head 
How did you get in the orbit of um, the birthday party then and, and Nick Cave? Well, we played some shows in Australia towards the end of, of magazine. We didn't know it was the end then, but it was towards the end. And I met a cousin of Nick's who actually played me a song of theirs, Mr. Clarinet, which I thought was was right up there with... I used to be a, a, a big, or still am, of course, a big fan of the pop group. And uh, as far as I could see, this was the closest thing to something that was going on that was happening. And I really thought they were going to be, they were going to be really big, really successful, really, you know, and they had this thing going. And so again, it was another series of events, you know, she came here to see me. They came here. I met with them. We hung out together. Their bass player couldn't make it over for one tour, not very long into sort of knowing them. I knew all the songs because I, you know, I was a fan and I listened to all the songs anyway, so I could play them pretty instantly. And uh, next thing I'm sort of in the birthday party, standing in, you know, as a, as a sort of substitute for when, for when Tracy came back. So, and then the, as the relationship went on, I could see that they were uh, fall apart, you know, and, uh, mm. and Nick started talking about doing something else, which eventually became Nick Cave and the Bad Seats. So over a couple of year period that happened. You described the moment recording from her to eternity, a staggering track, and and you explained the oh. creation or the recording it so vividly. Oh right, yeah. Well, I remember it so well because I thought it was just so amazing. It was like something I'd never heard before. Something totally uh, from a place where I think magazine we put everything quite neatly together and rehearse everything where. There was an additional kind of chaos at the time with the bad seeds where you'd be creating on the spot and ideas would be being thrown around and thrown out. And it was very much like art in the moment, you know, and I could see, I think I described Nick as doing that with lyrics and rubbing them out and then writing them. Like, you know, it was a bit like a Beethoven where Beethoven used to sort of write down a note and then scrub it out and then and stick all these pieces of paper on top of it and write different notes and then come back to the original note anyway. And it was just this sort of madness going on. But I thought it was it was incredible, you know, and, and the energy and what was going on with it and the soundscape, absolutely brilliant.
For the uh, the first born is dead. You you mentioned Hansa Studio, so you actually went to Berlin. That's right. Yeah, the whole thing was recorded 
uh, in Berlin. Yeah, I mean, to, you know, like you walk in and you hear Bowie singing Heroes, you know, and, you, you know, you see sort of this place that stands by the wall, you know, and its history and the dark side of the history, it's all there in this incredible building. And the Bad Seeds sound infuses so many different styles, but creates something mm. very much of its own and, and, and train long suffering where you've got yeah. some of that gospel and blues, but a twist right. on it. A twist, yeah. I think that's part of the band at that time was to take something and really sort of flesh out from the bones, like the like you say, you know, is it gospel? Is it blues? Is it this? Is it that? I mean, all those things are inevident as the, you know, the songs being created, but then there is a sort of unique twist on them from Nick, I'd say, more than anyone. But then you've got Blixer, who's playing in such an unconventional way, playing the guitar in such an unconventional way. I would go like, well, what am I going to bring to the table? What am I going to bring to the, you know, like to try and find something in a similar way. And so We'd be switching instruments all the time, you know, and getting out of your out of your comfort zone to play something that you've never played before, maybe to come up with something interesting. So yeah, it, it kind of went like that quite a lot.
that period or the, the few years afterwards, and you've alluded to this before, you face your demons and but get through them. Yeah, well, eventually, yeah. I mean, it was very, uh, you know, I, I did sort of hit a brick wall and slide down it, you know, over the course of a, of a few years, maybe four or five years there. I got through it. Again, I tried to sort of allude a lot of the time in the book to, you know, without saying you know, anything along the lines of miracles happening, but just just the impossible, like facing the impossible, you know, and getting through it. And I think this was the biggest one. So I, I leave it as the kind of climax of the book, you know, is how I do get through all that. And then again, there's a sequence and a series of events of incredible good fortune where I'd be the biggest fool on earth not to ignore, you know, to ignore it and go, this is it, you know, it, it stops now, you know, it stops now. I mean, there's an incredible amount of grief and sorrow as well going around. I'm consumed by sort of personal darkness and all this sort of carry on. And uh, again, you know, we talk about it before that, that music becomes, it's a bit of a cliche, it's a bit, a bit like this anchors the whole book, but suddenly I'm there at my worst sort of moment and I get this idea called Moss Side Story. And I know that I can't make my side story the way I'm going. So I have to, you know, I have to give up everything and make this, feels like anyway, to make this record. And it, and it felt like that saved my life in a way. Do you think that also the realisation of, of what you could do with a sampler is a phrase that you used before? It was like having an orchestra at your fingertips. Yeah, yeah. I Suddenly the world was open very much from strumming a bass guitar and going, okay, I can sketch that out on a piano and maybe sort of say that would be really good if it was played on this instrument, even though I don't play it myself. Suddenly, through the sampler, you did have an orchestra in your fingertips. You could play strings and pianos and all sorts of sounds and put your own sounds in as well, which I would do, you know, like bits of records, bits of what everyone was was starting to do. People would do it, you know, for beats and stuff, but I would fi- try and just find these other little weird things and make noises out of them, you know, and make sounds out of them. So that became something of incredible interest because it felt like you could start to do the things that, that were in your mind, you know, rather than like, well, I can't do that because I, that means I'm going to have to go and, you know, find the money to pay for an orchestra to do that and to show people this is what the kind of thing I'd like to do in a film because you would have had to have had that already, which is where all of these things came together as an mm. idea that I could perhaps be you know, a composer in film somewhere. And do you think it was um, remaking the, the Man with the Golden Arm, which was almost a, a template for the sound that you were looking ultimately to create? At that time, yeah, I was very interested in the, the older Hollywood sound, but also the kind of slightly darker sound as well, and, and also compositions that, that gave something that that i found a part of myself in as well as like being able to put them together and again you know incredible fortune was to take a little snippet of the man with the golden arm and rather it being the way it was on the original version to in the sampler i could put this like a few bars in the sampler and slow it right down and get this kind of new groove down and then put everything else on top of that and that's the stuff that interested me because that was starting to give me an identity in some way as well as a solo artist
and it was Moss Side's story that actually led David Lynch to ring you up to work with him. Again, you know, strange secret, you know, sequence of events that, you know, that um, where he's working on a film, somebody's playing Moss Side Story and says, what's that? He goes, oh, it's this guy in London, in England. And he goes, well, can I listen to the rest of it? Takes it home with him and then gets all my, you know, some of my other records because there have been a couple more since then. And then listens to them all and then calls me up. Yeah, basically calls me up the next day. Says I'm working on the film, like to be a part of it. I'll send it to you. I'll send it to you. Show it to no one. He says. <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah, of course I will. <laughs> yeah, great fortune again. It's an incredible journey, given you hadn't had that much musical experience in magazine, uh, the, the bad yeah, scene, yeah. and it, it just felt like an evolution as you yeah. blossomed as a um, a musician. And yeah, it's funny because. People say to me, Jason, like, well, you know, why did you think, why did you want to write a memoir? And I kind of go, I don't want to be arrogant in any way, of course, but I kind of look upon it <laughs> like this weird evolution of like, you know, someone who really, who was just so enthusiastic about music, but couldn't really play. And, but somehow gets themselves by working hard and, and dedication and all the rest of it and being, you know, into all these like positions, an incredible amount of luck at the same time. And if you look at it, oh, like, you know, in the way we had just, mm. just talked about it, you know, it is a book. It's almost like a book about, about this person, you know, who goes through all these things and at the same time is, is beset with personal troubles and comes through them and continues to find themselves in a place where there is something of value and purpose there. That's why I thought I should write a book about it. And if anyone ever, you know, picks it up who feels they don't have a purpose, then you can see it there. And hopefully that's sort of inspiring in some ways. As we move into the 90s, firmly established as a, a solo artist. And we, I mean, you were collaborating with a few artists at the, around that period. You have a collaboration with Jarvis Cocker, yep. set the controls for the heart of the pelvis. Yeah. Um, how did you two uh, get in touch with each other to um, work on that? Well, I, I'd been listening to pulp and, and i just thought it, and at the time i was interested in working with different singers really because i wasn't singing at that time and i was you know creating these kind of groovy tracks and, and this sort of stuff i thought well i've done the instrumental thing and it's been quite successful be good to sort of put some words on the top of that and i used to see the head of rough trade jeff travis at school run <laughs> And I just happened to mention to him, you know, I'd love to do something with Jarvis Cocker. And, and I thought he would just go like, well, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> but he said, oh, I'll mention it for you, see what he says. And then I think it was only that a few days later at school, he says, yeah, he's, he'd be into it. He, he likes your stuff. And, I, and that for me was like, well, you like. And so I got the track over to him and uh, he said, yeah, I'll do it. I said, there's just this bit in the middle that, like, you know, if you do it, you're kind of half-spoken. I'll sing and then just sort of see what happens with the rest of the track. That'd be fantastic. And so he said, yeah, okay, well, I'll come in on that Tuesday, the whatever it was. And on that Tuesday, the whatever it was, Pulp went to number one <laughs> with Common People. So he comes in, you know, and he comes in at the studios. He's like being mobbed on the doorstep to come in, you know, and he's like, he's like going like, because they've just hit number one. And there he, you know, and, and he did the he did the track. Came in with Jeff Travis, and we did the track together. It was all all very quick, a couple of takes, and he had he had the whole thing. It was, of course, it was brilliant. I still love it to this day. So yeah, and 
kept in touch. I'd bump into him now and again. I mean, I bumped into him in New York wow. after that. It was really strange. Like, what are you do? Uh, oh, right. And so we, you know, we went out for dinner and had a chat and all the rest of it. So, yeah, good collaborations at that time.
colours Sneak in a cold back later Save me from these glossy photographs Save me from my mother's laugh Save me That's right girls That's right girls Yeah Save me from my own hand this earlier when did you start um gaining the confidence and, and singing on your own material then at first i thought what would be good because it was something i was into at the time was was to almost do like a, a like a jazz beat poetry kind of thing so just say words and and i was in america i think working on it could have been lost highway and i was invited to this radio show and they said oh, on this radio show we invite people to play a piece of music and, and speak over it it's called Morning Becomes Eclectic. Uh, there was a radio show. And and I picked this piece of Miles Davis and started sort of, I'd wrote this thing. And it was called <laughs> Jazz Poetry. You know? <laughs> Bare walls and a concrete floor. You know, all this sort of stuff. And I, was, I, mean, I thought, I really quite enjoyed it. So I thought, well, start putting some words to my music. And then the words became like spoken. I think there's a song called Split was one of the first ones I did. And then I and then I just started to sing some ideas. I wasn't a very confident singer, but there were, in the book I go on quite a lot about how my mum mm. was an incredible singer. So it's mm. like, don't even bother, you know, when someone else in the family is a, is like a genius, you know. And it's like, don't even start. Mm. So I didn't, and until late, and I thought, well, maybe I've got a little bit of something in there, you know, like a little bit of the old baritone. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so I thought I'd give it a go. And then a few years ago, you released a, an anthology which kind of spanned your career. And yeah, a whole bit, yeah, yeah. And you added a new track, "The Hummingbird," on it. So was that a, mm. an older track, or was it actually a relatively recent one? No, it was a track I was working on at the time. The anthology was being put together. Uh, I mean, I'm always writing and I'm always working on stuff, and some stuff falls by the wayside and some stuff remains quite strong and i thought the hummingbird particularly was a, a strong track and so while that was being prepared i, I put the, the finishing touches to the hummingbird because i said oh we you know we need more tracks we need this thing as yeah i've got a few things going so that was one of the one of the ones that stood out to me as being of now that you know now in terms of the time of putting the record the anthology and like well so what's happening now and it was the hummingbird 
I still really, I, I still think that's probably one of the best tracks. It sounds weird to say that. No, one of the one of the best tracks that I've done. Really, I kind of hear it again and go, "Wow!" I kind of feel like I got it in on that track. And around that time, you performed um, a concert at Union and Chapel. Which, yeah, what was it like performing live as a solo artist? Well, I've done it a few times. I'm kind of used to it now. There's been quite a lot of touring through the years, and you know, support slots and headline slots. So what was interesting was going through the, was putting it together like an anthology concert and playing stuff from Moss Side Story, which, for example, which I'd never done. Mm. And that was strange because it was, it took you back. And also performing it now was, was something I never thought would ever happen. I felt it was a great evening. I think everyone had a great time. I mean, it was enough to make a record out of it. So yeah, I thought it was a good way to round that up. It was a bit like pre, pre-memoir, <laughs> kind of rounding off musically. <laughs> Up the four o'clock flower Got a gun in my hand So I kill every hour Done with the dirt And all the days in the shower Just to get the stink Off of me It was spurious, it was sweet Scrubbed away till underneath I could feel the white hot heat White hot heat on a hot white sheet Like a shark I smelled the blood Then I could not get enough All the frenzy out of love would not soften from the bottom when the landscapes came alive. The words as I feast on pink. You can lead a horse to water, you can make him take a drink. But you all know me, but it ain't quite what you think Here on Ballard's plantation But with a language out of reach Well, her faith I did beseech Till my soul was all a bleach Dry my eyes now as I stare into the sun And the world begins to fade With the choices we have made So commence a new charade Bright and shiny as a mirror And the landscapes came alive
to close, which does round things off. We from the Steal Away EP, we have the climate, and that's a song that that's got um, a soulful edge. It's got mm-hmm. a country mm-hmm. edge, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And does that hark back to some of the sounds that you were hearing in your formative years? Do you think? I think so, but it also for me, Jason, it's me stretching myself a little bit into those genres where, like country, jazz bluesy they've been there but in a more a more slightly off the wall way i think with me i think what i'm doing now is going like well how would it be to straighten those up a little bit and just have them cool you know have them in a in a way that you you know you might hear in a in an older orchestration or you know like a, or like a 50s 60s record but now I mean, it was all done in a sampler, <laughs> you know, by me. Um, but it sounds like it, all these sounds are, are being played and, and, you know, from that period, I suppose. So I think what I'm doing is like, yeah, those things have really affected me. But instead of being slightly coded about it, like, oh, is that, is that, you know, it's just straight ahead. I'm trying to sort of work it in a more straight ahead period, straight ahead uh, way particularly for this song to get the kind of message across and be a straightforward sound about it, if you like. So now you've released Up Above the City, Down Beneath the Stars, and mm-hmm. I, I do highly recommend that to everyone listening. And obviously you've got your EP out, which again connects strongly with that. Mm. What are your plans yep. for next year? Well, I've been promoting the book and the record, and for now I've been doing them live in the sense of a, an interview over the course of an hour and then playing a few songs just with the guitar stripped right back, you know, so the climb will just be like with just with the, you know, and just grooving it that way. So I'll do probably do a few more of those. I've got some what I call outside work, quite a bit of outside work, scoring and producing, particularly in the first half of the year, probably up until about March. So I'll get all that out of the way. And then and then I've, I know I've got a festival in Wales in March to do the similar thing. And then take from there, I'd like to see the band come back in some way to play more shows like in the way we did. But who knows? I'm constantly writing. I'm looking at hopefully putting together an LP towards the end of the year. Hopefully that could come out towards the end of, end of the year. And then, yeah, see how the rest of it goes. You know, it's like always something's going on and uh, it's not stopping next year either. Well, it's an inspiring story, your background, especially in those times, Mm -hmm. and an inspiring story of how you can overcome and flourish and climb out of it, hence the climb. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. That's a perfect tie to end, uh, Barry. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Uh, Thanks so much, Jason. Great to talk to you. All right. Well, take care. Cheers now. Bye.
for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the home page thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.